Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Run-In, this time coming to you from deepest, darkest lockdown Great Britain, um, two weeks into the coronavirus lockdown here, which has restricted us all to be working from home for the most part for most people in the country and um, to one outdoor exercise a day. So I'm sure most orienteers in the country are currently going a little bit stir crazy, but uh, we're, we're joined as ever by, by Catherine Bett. Hello. And also by a special guest this week, Alice Leake. Alice, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And this week we're going to be talking through the uh, the main news that's come out of um, the last couple of days, which uh, has kind of, I guess, unsurprising for for most people. It was only a matter of time before this happened, but um, the postponement and cancellation of pretty much the entirety of the international calendar um, for this twenty twenty season. So everything's gone. Everything's everything's cancelled. So uh, I guess, guys, how are how are we f- feeling? Well, let's go through like what is cancelled, what is postponed. So European champs in Estonia completely cancelled and as well as the World Cup final in Italy, what World Championships has been postponed? We don't know yet uh, until when at the moment. EYOC European Youth Champs have been postponed to uh, October, I think. And World Mountain Biker is off, uh, Yukula is off, Tiamila is off pretty much everything is off so for me I mean that's that's a lot of my work in the summer I mean luckily I've got a lot of more shifts and local radio at the moment but you know that's you know I look forward to that every summer that's pretty devastating for me but I'm not one who's was trying to go up for selection that was that was you guys so I mean Alice we've pretty much got you here to to find out your reaction to this news Uh, you know what did what did you make of it when you when you saw that pretty much the whole season was off yeah, I think um, I've sort of been through a bit of a roller coaster of emotions in this last few weeks. I think kind of when all this first came out, I was probably in denial about it. I was kind of like, oh, you know, there's this virus, but the JK will still be on. Like, it'll all be over in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. It'll be fine. And then sort of went from that to the period where it seemed to be every day something else was cancelled and, you know, JK went, British champs went, World Cups went, and it's just kind of progressively got worse and I definitely felt very deflated um sort of last Mm. week I went through a bit of a (laughs) a bit of a tough patch I guess um (laughs) I was kind of yeah yeah I guess everyone's feeling the same but sort of very sorry for myself and you know you think all all that winter training and you've slogged it out in the the wind and the Mm. rain and the dark nights and you know you've put in all that that work and um you know don't necessarily enjoy the cross-country season you kind of you do it to to enjoy your spring races and then suddenly all all that's taken away from you it's um you know it's pretty tough and then yeah I guess I sort of felt quite guilty about feeling that as well I think you know there's all this Mm -hmm. going on in the world and where they're feeling stressed about not being able to run a JK sprint race and it sort of in the grand scheme of things it feels a bit ridiculous but it's um you know it's it, it matters to us and it's you know it's what you've we've all been working for for the last year and it's what gets you out there training so to have that sort of uncertainty and all that taken away is um yeah it's pretty hard um and then obviously we got the news was it yesterday that um well champs is postponed now um like I guess we're kind of come to terms with the whole thing by now and almost mm. 
feel a bit relieved by that news. I think there was that uncertainty there whether, you know, do you keep training? What am I training for? What's happening? So actually to get that definitive, you know, there, there is no race in July, it's, mm. yeah, it's quite relieving. Yeah, I guess, mm. you, I mean, very well said, Alice. I think that reflects what a lot of the athletes will be feeling and, and actually I guess similar to, to a lot of the Olympians who who'd be looking who were looking forward to Tokyo they just kind of wanted to know uh, does that will does that reflect how, how you feel about the whole situation um yeah I, I think for the most part I'm I'm very similar to to Alice in a way um I think I had my moment of of, of moping maybe just before the British champs weekend because I felt like I was going into that in some really hot form and ready to put out a good result and then that was my moment of kind of maybe I was a bit nihilist and going well if this one's off everything's going to be off <laughs> so kind of had a little bit more of a boo that weekend um, but it, it, yeah like Alice said you go through the kind of the guilty emotions at, mm. at feeling you know annoyed that you can't go and essentially do what is a relatively privileged thing and I think I'm realising more and more in the last few days that actually going out and being stressed about hitting certain second pacing for a kilometre of running is actually quite a privileged position to be in if that's a major stress in life that's actually not too bad so like kind of this feeling of being stressed that I can't go and do a 15 minute race in July in a different country is actually quite maybe it's quite privileged and maybe I'm realising that actually there's there's bigger things out there than just that but when you're in it and when you dedicate so much of your life to it because it's, I think it's not just it's not just the year it's it's everything that goes along with it it's all of the the social things that you sacrifice it's the maybe people put careers on hold to do it maybe they go back to university and invest in another degree or at, in order to have a good training environment or they they go to a different country and, and all of these things that people make life choices based around this and not many people are making a lot of money from this sport so you know, there's a lot of sacrifices for a lot of people in a lot of different ways and I think it's only right that people can feel disappointed and like they've like, as if they've had something taken from them and, and that they can't do anything about because you can take a selection race decision quite easily I think really if, if you're not good enough on the day to go you're not good enough and mm. That's kind of with you, but when I think as an athlete, when a decision is taken for you and you ha- that you have no control over, that's when it's really tough to deal with. I think, but like I said, there's a lot of people in the same position, and I mean, everyone who's all of the university students that were going for world university selection. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there's not a decision if they can go for it next year as well if they're still eligible. Um, I think there's going to be a discussion about that in a few days at an IOF summit over the weekend. So they're probably questioning, you know, am I still going to be able to go next year? Or has that final opportunity to compete at World Universities, which is, for me, one of the most exciting and fun races out there that you can do um, on the international calendar. Is that just gone now for, for that group of people? Um, so, yeah, I think it's... And, um, and from, from a walk perspective, I mean, Alice, is this, is this kind of more difficult? I mean, it's going to be postponed at the moment, but... It, that's only kind of one option that they're talking about is it more difficult because now there's only a sprint world championships every other year no i don't think it necessarily makes it more difficult i think i'd have been very disappointed if it was just point blank cancelled and there was you know Mm. four years between world champs kind of um, (laughs) getting on a bit in my orienteering career (laughs) i think i'd have been pretty devastated by that sort of you know getting towards the peak of it I guess um mm. 
I think you know it is going to be rearranged at some point so I can kind of I feel like I can deal with that a little bit better. That's the thing. It's you. You put the effort in, like Alice was saying, over the winter, and, and you go through all of those dark, cold nights, and you get into the season where, because everyone talks about, oh, you're you're going into your best years or something like that, or, um, you know, between certain age bands, that's when you're going to be your best. And if you're suddenly in that age band, and then you've got a year taken away, you do feel like, oh well, time can be against you. So someone said it to me earlier in the week that, you know, ah, well that's a year gone for me. I'm not going any younger. And it was it was quite a it hit home for me of going oh well yeah maybe maybe I'm not getting any younger maybe this is this is a season that's now just gone but uh, yeah I, I, hopefully they, they I know there's talk about maybe doing it next year so having two having a walk sprint year and a forest year in the same one but I don't know how that would work in terms of the calendar and and things like that so yeah yeah so, I, so I, better that it's postponed yeah so the they said that there's several alternatives being considered in terms of dates and they haven't announced anything yet although they they say they want to announce something obviously as as soon as they've made a decision how unhelpful i don't know if that's the right word is it that we don't have the the new dates yet for the world championships if we're thinking now about kind of going forwards and and where you guys who who are looking for selection go from here yeah i think um i just think it's really important that all athletes in all the different countries have kind of that fair and full opportunity to prepare it's um you know I, I sort of don't mind when it's rearranged for as long as we kind of have that enough time to go and mm. you know do those preparations to go out and have test races and um you know we we can't train as a group at the moment if we're we're suddenly got this knockout sprint and a sprint relay and all these things it's that head-to-head element that you need to kind of have that preparation for um you know being able to get out in the terrains um yeah I think it just needs to be fair for for kind of all the countries so are you therefore more in favor of of maybe pushing it into next year rather than holding it kind of as soon as it's possible to hold it um I don't really have a preference either way I think it's I mean, we don't know how long this is going to go on for. It's, hmm. I would say, we probably need at least kind of four months of notice in order to to rearrange and replan our lives and to have all that. I think there's sort of been some dates floated around for next year, but again, it's you know it gives you longer to do the training, but it, there's not necessarily any more international competitions before that date that they've. Mm. sort of provisionally announced so you know in in some ways it potentially makes it fairer for everyone but it's there's not really kind of any extra opportunities to go out and prepare yeah I'd I'd agree like I said in terms of the prep you need those few months and selection panels will need a certain amount of time to be able to put a race in for for their national teams to be able to make a selection decision and then pick a team to allow them to give enough time to prepare as well so yeah I'd say four months isn't a bad shout in terms of how long how long we'll need um, beforehand. I guess I don't know how much prep that the organisers will still have to do in terms of mapping or or getting permission from town councils and that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, I, I think as, as long as we can get to prepare, um, it makes it a slightly different ball game with it being a sprint year. I, I mean, you could theoretically do it at any point during the next 12 months, mm. really, because it's, you know, you're not going to get um, the terrain snowed out or anything like that. So... Um, it, I mean, it could be December, it could be January, I, I don't know. But 
it could be it could be cool Christmas Christmas <laughs> walk but um, <laughs> yeah yeah I yeah. think maybe it's a little bit selfish from sort of well my perspective as being just a sprint only athlete being like yeah it'll be fine to have it next year when actually you know a lot of people might be focusing on sprint and forest and that would make a very full and very busy calendar for next year um you know them sort of finding the time to prepare for all those races to get time off from work go on training camps that might not be fair for people who want to target everything uh, i think at that point though you're getting into the the realms of that is sport isn't it you've got to you've got to kind of specialize and and pick what you want to go for mm-hmm. so I, I i don't have as big an issue with that one as as get, making sure there's enough time to prepare but i see what you mean in terms of yeah, some people will want to like Daniel Hubman, who is such a good round, all rounder at everything. He'll probably want to go for everything, won't he? Um, but someone like Yannick, I mean, I guess as long as there's a sprint walk, he's not really fussed. Yeah. And um, both of you, I mean, we've only recently had this um, announcement being made, but obviously both of you have been thinking about building basically your whole training around this season. I'm I'm sure you probably haven't had the chance to completely look now at at how your training's going to be affected and everything, but um, I guess, like, what are your initial thoughts about how how your training will change and and now you're no longer building up to July? Um, So I I actually spent Sunday putting out a... um a training plan all the way through to what was the walk t- the planned walk test races in uh in, <laughs> in may in december in in, in uh, denmark um so duncan's just laughing at me from across the room um so i, I was planning out every day f- based on isolation training and and the fact that i was only gonna be allowed outside once per day and all that kind of stuff so that's now completely null and void which is great um but I had, a, I had a chat to my coach during the week and we essentially decided, right, well, we're back to winter training. And I think this is what a few people have said, kind of back to winter training and we're going to spend the next few months just building a building up on the base again, getting long miles in, getting long reps in and, and just essentially doing the training that I'll enjoy and that will be I'll be able to keep mentally consistent with over this as, as long a period as time as it's going to be. So, you know, not going and stressing too much about trying to hit exact splits on the track but you know, just getting out good hard long effort and and just staying fit and uh keeping a, that massive aerobic base um i'm going to be doing cross training every day um in order to supplement the the lack of being able to do double running days um maybe get on a bit of yoga do some different stuff like that which i've never really done before you know try and be uh a bit more conscious of um, my body and its niggles instead of just hunting for mileage unnecessarily. So, yeah, just kind of changing the mindset a bit from the the grind of the winter, which was very much focused around miles and getting um, getting them in, in in double running days to um, to just single runs, which has actually so far been a lot more enjoyable as well. So mentally a bit fresher for it. Um, I think quite similar to Will, really, just sort of going back to basics with things. Um, I think I I definitely need that sort of routine and structure and a plan there, um, mm. and it's you know, it's quite hard when I had basically everything planned out to walk what I'm doing every day every weekend for for that to have disappeared. Um, so similar, just sort of going back to that winter training and kind of maybe not as structured. I mean, I I can't get to the track. I can't get to my athletics group to train with them. Um, you know, you, you can't go out in the car and go anywhere. You just 
sort of confined to you, the surrounding streets. So sort of trying not to stress about it too much, but just getting some long runs in and um, sort of a bit of high intensity work and really just business as usual. Um, and then mm. sort of using a bit of time to work on some of the things that I'm a bit weaker at. Um, I think it's almost quite nice having those races taken away and then sort of don't need to do that whole taper in piece to them and kind of just smash through and do some weights and do some strength work and all the things that maybe wasn't doing before um working on some flexibility and doing yoga and yeah just kind of things that I enjoy you know keeping me sane when I'm trapped in my house and <laughs> sort of good for <laughs> mental health and uh yeah just enjoying being outside because you work full-time don't you Alice yeah working full-time um live in a flat with no garden so sort of confined to to two rooms working and living in them so very much enjoying my one hour of allocated outdoor time <laughs> oh, well, well this so this is where it comes into the questionable point is it just the uh is it just the one hour no, um, because i've seen is. so many different things of <laughs> I think it's like, some people saying it's one hour yeah, so like I've some Ironman triathlete did a a nine hour three hundred k bike ride in one session around Norfolk and claimed that that was his one exercise per day. Sounds good. And like, well, yeah, it'd be, be lovely. But then you you try and do your normal Sunday long run and you see more people out than you've ever seen before. And like, everyone's just started running. It's and true. It, oh, it's a nightmare. So I was saying it's like the the park's the new sort of commuter route, and it's uh, everyone out, all these yeah. people you've never seen before. Um, but we're sort of weirdly enjoying it actually, like working from home and just being able to do a, I don't know, like a circuits class in a lunchtime, and you know you can just do it, and it's a bit more flexibility. It's kind of weirdly mm. refreshing. Yeah, that's true. That is true, and not having that commute to stress as well, and. Yeah. Although that's why I've started doing the, the spinning sessions in the morning on the turbo trainer, just to like replicate a kind of commute. So I'm up and doing something before I actually start work. Yeah, not just sort of rolling out of bed at five to nine. <laughs> yeah. Same. Who said this lockdown? Who who said this lockdown was making things quiet? <laughs> it sounds like we're busy as anything. I think I have to be for sanity. Any Strava segments you want to go and hunt, oh, or people you want to call out? I have been doing that. I have been uh, taking the. I've been getting incredibly petty. <laughs> <laughs> just need trying to find things to keep myself amused so i've been um yeah hunting out all the all the segments that i want and uh taking them from my rivals <laughs> yeah I, i've i've just lost a couple before we jumped on the call so i need to go and get them back in a couple of days <laughs> get them back the next day yeah i'll be intervals tomorrow okay well let's let's alison if you hold there we'll be um back to chat about uh the question that Ralph set um, but we're actually going to go back to an interview that was recorded a few months ago now with uh, when um, Will and some of the other Brits were on uh, the training camp in Portugal with uh, IFK Ludinger then uh, Hector Haynes actually managed to sit down uh, with uh, Morten Bostrom the uh, sprint world champion from 2013 to find out um what it's like to be him. I just thought we'd just talk in the beginning about who is Morten Bostrom, how did you get into orienteering and what, what that development and growing up in the sport was like for you in Finland? Yeah, so I had three older siblings and they all did orienteering and I guess the family started orienteering when my big brother Mikael uh, started orienteering and my 
dad and the rest of us got carried away during the next few years. Uh, since they had good results then, uh, it was only a natural way for me to uh, continue in the sport and, uh, and pursue my dreams in, uh, in it. Yep. So your older brother, he was like an idol figure to you and you, you were growing up like wanting to be him and, and obviously wanting to be better than him. Yeah, it was really, really natural for me to see all the effort he put into the sport and all the details mm. he, uh, he made right so that he would be as good as he could ever be. And, and I think that was a really important uh, thing for me to see yeah. so every, everything he does and, and, and how good he became. Yeah, yeah. So did you have the same coach or like how, did, how, was you, how were you coached as a junior? Well, I guess our dad played a big role in that. But then at some point as a junior, my big brother started coaching me and then uh, during the years when when he realized I'm running faster than him then he told me to get another coach that uh, <laughs> could could uh, get me even faster yeah. nice and so as a older junior you went to Jaywox and this sort of thing I guess yeah um, yeah I went to trade three Jaywox mm -hmm. okay and how is the how is the development from your local club and being yeah good in your region to running for the national team at mm. that age yes yeah, so uh, I went to a sports high school uh, which was 30 kilometers away from home in Helsinki so I guess that was a bigger step to take that I wanted to develop and uh, get out of the, the local club uh, environment and, and there we had then really good uh, runners around me and, and we had morning trainings three times a week and uh, one afternoon training with with uh, yeah with good company and with on good maps and, and, and good uh, good coaching yeah so this sports high school they specialized in orienteering not only orienteering like most uh, most uh, promising athletes in Finland they go through this system mm. so all the bigger cities they have a sports high school and not all sports high schools have all uh, different sports, but uh, the one I went to, Mäkelänrinne Sports High School, that, that has all the major sports, I think. Okay. No matter what sport yeah. you do, if you're good enough, then you have a really yeah. good uh, chance to get in there and do both your academic work and, and your sports side. Yeah. So what, what uh, ages are you when, you when you start the school and when you finish that school? Uh, let's see. Uh, 16 when you start and uh, you can choose to do it in four years usually you do high school in three years in Finland mm, yeah. but if you're an athlete you can do it in four years so you don't have to stress too much about the academic side so yeah. that, that's that's a really good uh, advantage because if you do it in three years in a normal high school and you try to also train twice a day it's you don't really get enough rest in that Okay, so that's incredible. So you get the education and you get the sporting side and you can take a bit longer and then develop. So what happened after you finished high school? Uh, after finishing high school, uh, all boys in Finland have to do their military service. So uh, I did that for one year. In that's also a sports uh, section in the military where you, where you uh, not only that you get to do sports during your military time, but you also get to interact with uh, athletes from other sports. I think that's that's one thing that in both the high school and in the military system, you it's important that you get to interact and, and see what uh, athletes in other sports do, so that you're not only 
see like the tunnel view of, of what orienteers or what runners are doing, but you can also see what cyclists and, and wrestlers and whoever knows what, what you can learn from them. But, but it was an interesting time in, in both the high school and in the military. Yeah, I can see you've learned a lot from those Finnish wrestlers uh, every other year. So, yeah. yeah, you wouldn't, you'd never know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <coughs> well, I mean, sprint orienteering nowadays, it's, it could be a bit like that. So. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, knockout sprint for sure. Knockout sprint, yeah. Good. Um, anyway, so, wow, so then the military service, that was just one year? Yeah, that's, w- that's one year, yeah. and, and uh, it's really good for the sports. Like, you have a few weeks where it's, not ideal where you have to be sleeping in a, in a big tent with uh, 12 other snoring guys and, okay, and yeah. it can be really cold and it in can the, be really wet and yeah, in the middle of the forest and yeah, yeah yeah but then most of the time it's it's pretty chill yeah and you uh yeah, you get to train in good company and and uh good facilities okay and then that was i guess uh the end of one part of your life what happened from from that point where yeah. did you go yeah from there uh, then I had already run uh, uh, let's see a couple walks uh, Sweden and Japan and then after that I decided uh, I wanted to see how far I could go as an as a runner so I had signed up or, or got an athletic scholarship to go to Northern Arizona University so that was yeah I decided that if I'll stay in in Finland I'll be tempted to do orienteering in the summers and uh, and then I won't be able to develop as a runner fully so those uh, well I, I had decided to go there for just one year that was that, okay. was, that was the plan and uh, and focus on my speed then and, and see in the track how far I could go yeah. marathon came later on then but but uh, in the university system in the US, it's track, and uh, usually yeah. if you're if you want to go for the marathon, then that comes afterwards in the US system. And yeah, uh, yeah. okay, so you were thrown in from an orienteering background into the track and field and uh, road, I guess, uh, race scene in America. Like that's a fairly stark difference in my mind, at least. Uh, could you add a few details into you know kind of the day-to-day life when you were in America then? Yeah, um, well, I uh, I knew I was not going to be orienteering there. That, that was for sure, and uh, and I had heard uh, about this place, Flagstaff, um, through uh, orienteering runner friend Alexander Lubina, a German who had been there on training camps before, and 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 I kind of thought that okay this high altitude training thing this is something I want to try out and Flagstaff is at 2100 meters so that was a really big part of why I chose Flagstaff I didn't really know that much about the culture it had in in long distance running uh, I just knew Arizona is a it's a pretty warm place and I, I'll be uh, running on on dry ground most of most of the winter so so I guess, uh, yeah, going somewhere south in the U.S. and, and then getting high altitude, that, was, that was, seemed like a perfect place. Yeah, cool. And so altitude training and that obviously worked for you. Um, you ran some pretty fast times and got pretty quick. Um, you briefly talked about your marathon, but can you discuss, like, okay, when did that marathon focus come and why did you decide to focus on a marathon 
I mean, you got you got a pretty fast time. I think uh, two eighteen was is that your, your fastest time yeah, in marathon? Yeah, yeah two eighteen. Yeah. So, I think for most people, they consider that pretty quick. Yeah, that was uh, I guess towards. So I ended up being in Flagstaff for four years then, uh, and uh, I guess the dream became that I wanted to step up to the marathon. So I had run. I wasn't quite satisfied how much I progressed on the track. So I ran 5K, 10K in the steeplechase, and I got a little bit faster on all of those in the US, but uh, cross country is where I really advanced, and, and that's a really big sport in, in the US compared to what it is in, in the Nordic countries. So I really enjoyed that, and, and from there, I guess, the next step would be from running 12K courses on cross country would be then to step up to the marathon. So. I had the chance to already, during those uh, track seasons, I had the chance to go up to the marathon and run it uh, a couple times during my, my collegiate career. And uh, I ran, ran uh, Houston, that was okay, and then I did my PR in, uh, in Ottawa, and that was in 2008, if I remember right. So that was, that was when I was trying to qualify for for the Olympics and uh, I was on pace until some 35k but then really bonked in the end so I felt like the marathon I, I never really got a perfect race in the marathon and that sometimes like I had a typhoon come through Fukuoka when I was running there the, the night before and it was really windy and yeah. other times I was just in a gap where I had to run half of the marathon by myself and, and it's not ideal so I never felt like I really got the perfect race in the marathon, and, and that's yeah. something that you know, maybe maybe one day if I yeah. if I stay healthy and, yeah. and can uh, run a hundred mile uh, weeks for a couple of months, maybe I still go for it. I don't know. They've got the new shoes now, so yeah, you know, maybe you maybe just maybe shave a few minutes off with the two <laughs> yeah. from the two eighteen, and you'll yeah, these new shoes will get you there. So um, awesome. So that was, so America, and then um, you kind of came back to Europe, I guess, or you had some time in uh, Zanzibar, actually, as well, didn't you? Yeah, where, where I guess, does that fit let's see, the... um, after, after the collegiate career, uh, I spent, uh, I think, two or three years in Finland when I was still focusing on, on improving my marathon times, so then I was going on training camps to Kenya in the winters and, and, and really focusing on, on the running side and, and forgetting about the track and doing road races and uh, the marathon was the goal but I guess I never really never really had a healthy uh, lead up to a marathon so that I could do in in ideal conditions train just as I wanted it was it was a really good time and I think it, it definitely helped me later in the orienteering career to to really put effort on uh, my running economy and 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 trying to get better on that side. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just I'm I'm just interested at this time. Did you have any orienteering races at all? Like you were doing still Yukula and Team Ela and things. For yeah, your I guess. Club? Yeah, I guess usually, usually during my time in the U.S., I'd come home to to Finland in the summers and I'd do orienteering races. I guess some of the years I qualified for walks and. And other years, the coaches thought, okay, if you're entering just two months of the year, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go to walk. Yeah. Uh, 
and I guess yeah that's all right but then uh, yeah during the marathon uh, years from uh, 2009 to 2010-11 uh, those years it was more orienteering again so marathon was the focus but I felt like I can't be running on on paved roads all the time so running in the forest was a was a really good substitute to that yeah. saving my legs a little bit but then you mentioned Zanzibar I was working there uh, in 2011 and 12 during those years I was there a total of 12 13 months still running marathons and uh, and I guess uh, that was towards the end of my marathoning career and I did some again high altitude training camps in uh, in Eldoret and in 10 and and really trying to to go all, all out after after being in Zanzibar with non-ideal conditions and uh, I guess for me uh, a big part of of the running career has been to go to new places and and run with new people and and having people around me to run with that's that's been a big motivator for me to to push me forward and and yeah get the motivation that if you're out there with other guys then then you really have to fight for your your spot in the pack and yeah. uh, and that's bigger being yeah big motivator all the yeah. way yeah totally i i can relate to that like the kind of exploration and being in different places is uh is super motivational when it comes to running and yeah just a different change of scene can really like yeah, boost, boost your motivation so <laughs> great and then i guess it was after that that finland uh World Champs 2013 was probably announced, or at least you knew about it. And, yeah. Uh, that became the main focus, I guess, did it? Yeah, it was a big temptation to run walk on home ground. I had been there in 2001 when it was in Tampere, and I, I saw the atmosphere and I could see how the athletes were really enjoying their their spot on the start line and all the way through. And, and it's, uh, yeah, hear, hearing from, from the older athletes, which... Uh, how amazing the the atmosphere was that was that was something i really wanted to to try and go for and uh, and i guess i had then a year when i changed things up quite a bit again when uh, orienteering was my main focus and and didn't do any any road racing in uh, towards the end of 2012 and and uh, i did have a surgery in the end of 2012 that was like a turning point is such that I, I guess I run my legs out of shape. In uh, so they had a, I had a surgery on on both my Achilles tendons and my heel bones were shaved a little bit so that the Achilles tendon would uh, be able to move across it again. And uh, I had to rest for two months then in in the end of 2012 and kind of started from zero and then had to really do things right in the beginning of 2013 so that I would be able to be in, in shape in, uh, in July when, when the walk in Sotkamo was on. Amazing, yeah. In, in the World Champs in 2013, you had all of this training behind you, then a transformative surgery, but you had to start from zero. How mentally did you turn yourself around like what were you doing and thinking in those two months where you couldn't train you had this home world champs that you really wanted to perform at going into that and knowing like okay I've got to do everything right everything has got to go the right way and then I 
maybe stand a chance? <clears throat> yeah, I guess changing things up a bit was uh, before I could run again, uh, well, allowed to run again, according to the doctors, I started doing strength training, which I hadn't really done before, and I was a little bit skeptical about it, but my my then coach, uh, Jari Kahemonen, was sure that we need to we need to do something different. This, this sprint is not just running flat like 5K, but you're actually stopping and accelerating. And so we contacted a, a sprinting coach from athletic side and, and we did some really specific uh, strength training, which, uh, well, the goal was that every time I stop, that takes uh, out more energy if I'm not prepared for it. And then again, accelerating, that uh, takes out more energy of me and, and towards, especially towards the end of the race, you get a lot slower in the accelerations if you haven't trained for it and, and your muscles aren't prepared for it. So I think just really going through the details of that, that in a sprint race, you go to a total stop at every control and you do 180 degree and 90 degree turns many times a minute. So just shaving, shaving time of every of those accelerating uh, that's that's what really got me going that okay if, if I can get half a second uh, of every of these turns in the end of the race then then it can really make a difference and okay. and uh, yeah I guess I understood that if you really look at the sprint race and you see how how the posture of, of the runner really changes during the race that you you're not running like you're running a 5k race mm. but it's totally yeah. different physically that's back when we still had to stop at the controls to punch, uh, <laughs> not not touch free like we're doing today. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, uh, yeah, doing things a little bit differently. That's something that uh, was important for the mind. That I'm I'm really doing things that that could make a difference now. Yeah. Then we had uh, we had some World Cups. Uh, it was called Nordic All Tour uh, early in the year and and. I could see that I'm still a bit behind the best of the world, but I could see sections like the last two or three minutes of the race. I could usually keep up with the best in the sprint races then, and that was that was something that really uh, upped my self-confidence. That okay, if if I keep on doing things right for for a couple more months, then then it can it could be enough, and and I could be uh, good enough and. And I had a really good feeling leading in, leading into the world champs. The last few weeks we did, we had quite a bit of intensity with the national team where we trained together in, in different small towns around Finland where we could find similar settings as, as where the world champs would be. That was really, really good. And, and we had some trainings where, where you're running down the main streets of, of some of these small towns and you're like, look exactly like like Sotkamo yeah. and and afterwards when you go through like oh yeah this could be like the challenges we're getting at Sotkamo when we we need to go around these buildings in a similar way and 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 I think that uh, that feeling of uh, when I knew the race was going to be in Sotkamo I, I felt really confident about oh I, I know what the buildings will look like I know how an opening in a fence will look like and 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 stuff like that, small details, so you don't have to stop again and look, is that really the opening? But you can actually just smash through and, yeah. and, and 
go for it the whole way. Yeah, so, I mean, those aggregation of, like, split seconds, that obviously makes a big difference in the end of a sprint. Uh, I think you won by two seconds in the end. No. Could be Scott Fraser. Uh, I think you, I think you need to check your details. I think, it's maybe 14 or 17 or 20 okay. or something like that. But it was... It was a considerable difference. Yeah, yeah, it was considerable. Yeah. I remember Scott Fraser, he won the silver medal, and mm. we were obviously so excited for him that year. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, it, it, it was a big difference. And then you also uh, were practicing routines, different, different routines and things, I guess, for that race. Like, everyone, I remember at the time, everyone was quite concerned because the punching system was an emit punching mm. system mm. and at least for us british runners we always run with si mm. mostly yeah. and a lot of the international competitions are with sport ident so did you do anything particular with the emit yeah i guess i guess i did uh, so we did uh, in finland we run with emit so i guess that's an advantage for us that that, that was going to be used at at world champs but uh, at WOC, you don't get to run with your own emits. Uh, so we got the organizer's emits, and I guess I was mainly wanting to make sure that, okay, all, all the emit uh, punching units on, on our fingers, that they're working. So, so I, I took the whole team's punching units, and, and we, uh, one of the coaches built, built a small course for me where I could run through the course and check that all the punching uh, units worked or the punching cards, I should say, worked. And, uh, and I guess while I was running those, those uh, punching courses, uh, I wanted to get faster and faster on them. And then uh, it was, this was a couple of days before, before walk. And uh, I guess usually I'd do uh, strides after, after a run. And now I decided, oh, okay, we, we could build another punching course and, and I could uh, run my strides going through that. So then I started... I guess I'd done it before already. I started punching the punching uh, with the card, so it's it's like uh, top first down. So you're not you're not getting a, a mark in your piece of paper that's attached to it. That's the backup system for Emmet punching. But I could I could learn where I need to put the the punching card and the punching unit so that I would get a punch, and I I could get a feeling of how long I needed to keep the card down so that it would register a punch. So it was, it was a little bit risky for, well, at least if, if you haven't practiced and you don't have the feeling, then it's risky. But if you, uh, if you really wanted to go and uh, do all the details right, then, then I guess this is, this is one of them. Yeah, that's absolutely admirable. I mean, I remember we were using the emits and of course trying to practice to you know, be as quickly as possible, getting them correctly orientated and into the punch because, of course, they only go in one way, mm. and then making sure they go all the way down to get the backup punch to be super mm. safe. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously, going into that sort of detail to know that okay, I just need to put the end in, where exactly it goes, how long to get the punch registered, and then just running away. Mm. And mm. I remember, yeah, watching you punching like that and uh, being amazed that that, that could work with him and. Um, yeah, for sure. That's that's an outstanding memory of mine. Well, I'm sure some of the coaches they were not too satisfied with me punching like that because uh, people I had gotten some disqualifications through that, and other people who tried it yeah. had got disqualifications. And and I guess at walk you don't really want to have runners 
taking big chances. So I uh, just yeah. had to convince them that I yeah. know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously you did. You won the gold medal. So that's a massive congratulations for that. And then, you know, you'd had this sprint focus, but obviously you, you were still running in the forest, racing in the forest and growing up in Finland, you know, it's part of the culture of running in the forest. So you were this kind of forest orienteer as well. You weren't just specializing yourself in sprint. And the next year, well, a couple of years, you had some really good results in the forest as well. In European champs, Portugal 2014, you were 14th. And then the year later in the world champs in Scotland, you were also 14th in the long. So tell us a bit about how you trained for those switching the focus perhaps a little bit into the forest and, mm, and what, mm. what went on there yeah i guess in the sprint it was natural for me i was i always had fast legs but then i guess in the forest as an orienteer in finland especially you run the majority of your trainings you do in the forest so i had a background in running forest orienteering but but of course i had to switch things up a bit and and especially Training-wise, I wasn't doing as much focus on the strength training anymore when when switching over to long distance. And I guess after having won a walk in sprint, then it's not as motivating. At the time, at least, I felt it's not as motivating to to try to do it again. But I I wanted a new uh, a new goal and uh, and trying trying to go for a medal in a long distance. That was that was the next goal. Cool, and. Since those championships, you've obviously continued um, becoming more experienced, you could say, and still racing a lot for your country. Um, what do you think about these years since 2015? How's it been, you know, maybe you've had some problems, uh, injuries or whatever, but also, you know, innovations and experiences that you've had to really become the athlete that you are right now yeah i guess uh changing clubs and then moving to sweden the year after i i won walk in in finland was uh, was a big move and i i kind of felt like oh, i need uh, i need to change environments and and get new people around me to train with and and uh running relays has been a really important part of of my orienteering career especially after the move to, to Sweden. We had a few years where we were fighting for the win in both Yukolas and Tiumilas and, and those were really, really inspiring times. And I guess I've done more night training, even if I'm not doing a lot of it. Uh, I'm, I'm usually hoping to get one of the later legs in, in the big relays. Uh, that's changed. But again, in, uh, in Leading, we have lots of uh, trainings together. So pretty much every day of, of the week you can train in company and and that's something I'm really enjoying and uh, I guess uh, with walk uh, now splitting into into forest and and sprint uh, sprint is again feeling uh, like something I want to do and and uh, I think now when uh, knockout sprint is going to be a, a walk discipline that's something I've, I've always enjoyed because then it's it's more like track racing I guess when you're up against other guys and and it's it's a little bit uh yeah fighting like like a wrestler mm -hmm. on, on some of the controls and and that kind of spirit is, is something I really enjoy so yeah 
we'll see. I'm, I'll be around for several years to come. That's 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 for sure. And uh, for sure, this year sprint is is more important than forest. But uh, the relays will always be there, motivating me. And uh, and I guess still what I'm doing, I'm I'm going on training camps to new environments and trying to get inspired by running up on a new mountain and and uh, and running on new maps. That's that's definitely something that keeps me going yeah yeah awesome so this year then you'll be dusting off the bells and uh, jingling your way around world champs perhaps <laughs> i mean i make a joke there but uh morton you're famous i guess in the orienting world for having bells around your ankles uh, i think that started in venice did it yes world, it did world yeah, champs, yeah so can you just talk a little bit about the that sort of innovation that you bring to the sport and also you know other things that you might do uh tweaks to your gear or your your whatever technique to really try to gain an advantage or mm. or, or do something different yeah i guess i ha i haven't really before you mentioned it i haven't really paid that much attention to uh that i do such things but yeah the bells came around my ankle in training training in Venice before world champs in in Italy in 2014 we, we were running through these really narrow streets with tourists on them and I'm like okay somehow I don't want to be shouting at them but I want to let them know that they have a chance to get out of my way before I, I run into them so so this is where the bell started and, and I guess uh, it became more important after I, I had some collisions where I ran into other runners and and the cameraman in in walking Sturmstad. So so just that I don't have to focus on what's happening around me, but whoever else is around me can uh, can get out of my way. That that was the main main thing, and and I think it's yeah, it's helped in some terrains and with some people it helps that that. Uh, you have a better vision in front of you with with no people on on the street but i hear also uh chris jones have gotten stressed of it uh yeah i think it was in italy at the world champs uh, sprint relay when he could hear the bells getting closer and closer behind him so uh, i guess yeah, yeah. <laughs> i hope nobody's uh, taken offense from from hearing the bells and uh, and uh, and actually understand that it's it's a safety thing why i have it it's it's not to confuse anyone else but but just yeah. to yeah it's not nice to run into people orienteers or spectators yeah. no for sure i think it's uh whatever you think about it i th i think you've got to admire the innovation and the, the you know the way of thinking and the approach to the to the problem of mm. yeah mm. sprint orienteering in a touristy place or yeah. or with all these like others even athletes and cameramen yeah. and this such yeah yeah that's really cool um I guess you also you also mentioned uh, some other innovations. Uh, the compass that I'm using, it's uh, in sprint. Then I have uh, like a, I think a compass, just just the compass uh, box that's attached uh, with some straps to my thumb, so I get it close to the map, and then it's it's there all the time. It's not often you need a compass in sprint, but when you need it, you you want it to be handy and, and nearby uh, and I also have a, a loop attached to that in, so that I can in, in narrow places where there's uh, 
just a small opening in a in a fence or, or between a building and, and another object I can put the magnifying glass in front of the the map and I can see the the small details you know I'm not 18 years anymore so uh, I, I need these kind of innovations to, yeah, to yeah. be able to keep up with the young guys. No, absolutely. And then that, that frees up some of your hands. You can, I guess, refold the map mm. easier and this sort of thing, which is obviously yeah. very important in sprint orienteering. Yeah, yeah I to guess. To be able to manipulate the map easily. So, mm. yeah, no, I, that's really cool. And now, I guess, you're um, obviously a family man now. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Young Hugo, he's... Uh, getting on towards a year old now so as we uh, record this podcast so that's um, pretty exciting I guess he's, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, he's a big part of your life and how do you fit that into training and, and what what lifestyle changes have you had to make now yeah well it's it's different for sure uh, since, since both me and, and my wife we're we're running so so it's it's not possible to run on small trails with Hugo but we have a <laughs> Whenever we're running on uh, on bigger trails and, and roads, we we have uh, a stroller where, where Hugo can be sitting, and, and and he really likes going in that, and also in in forest. Well, actually, we've done some orienteering technical trainings where he's sitting. He's got this mini maze where he's sitting on top of uh, my shoulders, and, and he really likes being in the forest. You can yeah. tell that when when he go there, he's he's never sad. He's, he's always just exciting noises up there so but for sure it's there's less time in in the day with uh, with Hugo around so we just need to be uh, yeah planning a little bit more and uh, making sure he stays happy and uh, and both me and my wife gets out on our runs yeah, yeah. no great I mean I, the way you guys look at Hugo and, and the way that he looks at you is is really cool and to be able to think about, you know, the next generation of orienteers that are going to come through in 15, 20 years time, like this is going to be super exciting and really fun to see. So um, hopefully, you know, the sport can continue to develop and those athletes uh, in 20 years time can can make new innovations yeah, that, yeah. that can make us proud. So yeah, yeah. yeah no, that's going to be really cool. Um, well, thank you, Morton. I mean, is there anything else you would like to talk about? Do you think there's anything else we missed? through this uh, chat I mean no I going, think... going into the future you still got plenty of plans for being in the orienteering game and obviously retirement is going to happen at some point but you know Valentin Valentin Novikov he's still going and he's he's a good five years older than you is he yeah six, I think... six years older than you so there's plenty of time still right? yeah I think uh, having athletes like, like Valentin Novikov and uh, Håkan Eriksson won his first walk I think it was 42 or 43 yeah, yeah, at the yeah, time yeah. so yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a sprint yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think there's still time to to be in the sport and and uh I think for me, yeah, it's changed. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not the one who's going to surprise anyone. Uh, but it's really, it's really good now in the club. We have lots of young guns around, and and you really need to be focused when you head out in the forest if you want to come back and have a fastest time. So yeah. that's not going to happen easily. And then, and that's the kind of uh, motivation I need to to get going to uh, try to keep up. Yeah. Well, great. I mean, all the best for the future, and obviously. Congratulations on the many successes of the past. Thank you, Morton. Thank you. 
so thank you very much to Hector Haynes for stepping in and doing that interview with Morton Bostrom there at our training camp in Portugal um, back in February. So hopefully everyone got something interesting out of that. I, for one, found the uh, the whole Scandinavian setup and and how they go through school and everything pretty fascinating, and and how much of an influence his family had in his uh, his orienteering career. And um, and yeah, uh, it's a shame that we won't be I won't be able to race with Hector or Morton for later in the year because it, it looked like a pretty good group that we were building up at, um, at leading over this year but maybe Team Miller might still be on for the, uh, for the autumn mm. we'll see there might still be a chance of that but um, we're now leading back into a new feature that we got um, from our last special guest on, on uh, last week's two weeks ago episode um, Ralph Street's Conundrum I, I, did we ever come up for a name of it was it Ralph Street's Ralph's Orienteering Conundrum I, Ah, uh, the Orienteering Conundrum. Okay, so the question was, what was the last race since the JK in 2015 that Chris Jones, in the UK, that Chris Jones did not win? Now, there were kind of two answers to this, and, and Ralph clarified that one of them wasn't the one he was thinking of, um, which I think, Alice, you launched straight in on Twitter and stuck <laughs> your hand up and claimed the correct answer almost a, almost immediately after the podcast went out. So firstly, thank you for being the first person to listen to I that I thought it one. was just a bonus feature. <laughs> I didn't realise it was part of the actual podcast. <laughs> no, no, it is. I, I, it, I think now it might be becoming a, uh, a part of it. There was such a good reaction that um, people really seem to love it. So uh, the, uh, the answer that you gave, Alice, I think, was that it was the... Um, Sprint Scotland race that Chris collided with a small child in and um, well we'll actually well we'll hear the full explanation from Ralph so Ralph's going to give you the uh, the full answer now Greetings from sunny Norway the JK in 2015 Chris was fourth behind Andreas Kibbutz Scott Fraser and Matthias Kibbutz and as we alluded to in the podcast there are possibly two answers to this question because Chris has been third in one UK sprint race and eighth in another. In the one he was third in, he was beaten by Chris Smithard and Alistair McLeod. But he did collide with a young girl early in the course. And then he says, I started again once she was looked after. I was a bit cold and scatterbrained, still feeling bad. That's from his attack point. Is that just an excuse? Should he really have have still won that race, or was he was he affected by it? And does that does that not count as a defeat? My answer for the question is the race where Chris was eighth. That race was won by Jonas Leanderson, and the other the other defeaters of Chris were Martin Hubman, Jörkelisel, Morten Bostrom, Yannick Michels, Daniel Hubman, and Andreu Blanes. And that race was, of course, the World Championships in 2015 held in Forres. So an interesting um, answer there. The uh, correct answer being Wok Sprint 2015 in Forres. That's, that's a sneaky what answer. What are the chances of that? That's a sneaky answer. Anyway. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's good that he gave a list of everyone who beat Chris as well. So um, <laughs> in, in, in both of those races. So... Uh, <laughs> just to rub salt into the wound but um an interesting answer but he has actually sent us a follow-up for uh, for a question this week as well so um listen carefully to this one because it does get a little bit tricky so you just got to pay pay attention but he does give an example of the uh the style of the question and the answer that he'll be looking for 
This episode's question is based on an idea from another podcast, so if you listen to that, go well. And on that podcast, they combine cricketers and musicians. So I thought, let's combine orienteers and something. So just as an example, here's an orienteer and a musician combined. Having spent most of her junior career running for Cleveland, this GB squad athlete is trying to shake it off. So the answer to that is Cat Taylor Swift. Cat Taylor, of course, spending most of her junior career running for Cleveland and Shake It Off, a song from Taylor Swift. Now I thought, what do we actually, Catherine Will, have in common with musicians? I'm not certainly musical. I don't know about you, Catherine. Will, I know you do a great Gautier impression, but whether there's any more there, I'm not so sure. So here is a question combining orienteers and maps in the UK. So the question is, despite originally coming from England, this GB squad athlete's favorite area is a small one very close to the A9. So there you go. There is Ralph's question for this week. Um, Catherine, Alice, any, any initial inklings? Oh, this is hard. I've got nothing. I can't I can't even think right now. I guess well we'll we'll put it up on Twitter uh, as well at the same time as the um as the pod as the podcast goes out and you'll have to respond on there. At the running pod on Twitter in case you're wondering. Um you can find on there you have to submit your answers like Alice did. But make sure you listen to the whole podcast first because, you know, otherwise you make a mistake like Alice did um, so we'll we'll see what uh, answers come about of that one. I'm thinking there's going to be quite an array of different things, but we're just going to finish with a little shout out to various things that everyone's doing over the um, over the UK to kind of stave off the boredom and keep themselves interested in in the sport and in their in their current state of lockdown. So um, I guess firstly, thank you to everyone who's been getting in touch and and saying they've been enjoying the podcast and uh, and actually demanding more episodes on a weekly basis. There is a reason we're not doing the weekly stuff at the moment. It's because Catherine and I are actually still quite busy with work. Um, so <laughs> we're, uh, we're we're staving off on those ones until uh, until maybe things quieten down a bit later in the year or, or something like that. So, uh, But thank you very much for all the requests that have been coming in for us to, uh, to do that. Um, and then... Maybe what people could do is actually recommend us to somebody who wouldn't normally listen to the podcast or wouldn't normally listen to any podcast. Maybe there's some like older orienteers out there who might find listening to us um, a little bit of fun, a little bit of something they can do. So I, I give a target to all our listeners, recommend us to someone who wouldn't normally listen to a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great challenge. And uh, we've got some very exciting interviews coming up over the next few weeks, we hope, with, uh, with some ex-internationals. So um, watch this space as well. Um, but a little shout out to, to some initiatives that are going on over the UK. So um, we've got various things happening across various um, you know, virtual orienteering streams. So we've had an international... Well, say international. We've had the Scottish Virtual Orienteering League start up, which has had their first <laughs> race last weekend. So there's a race every Saturday if you want to jump on Catching Features, a, a pro an online program we spoke about um, last time for uh, virtual orienteering. Um, so shout out to those guys doing that. 
Uh, we've had people like, um, actually my dad, doing this for the uh, Octavian Drubas, doing a virtual Scoro, where you've um, got to work your way around on, on Google Street View to try and find the score controls. And there's a challenge to see if, if the description is actually right in them all. So a little bit of kind of puzzle We've got various people setting up virtuals and um, solo orienteering, which Boff has actually come out and said that they don't recommend doing. Um, but if you if you like Catherine and jumping over some fences to get in some areas, you know you can, uh, sh- can always sneak <laughs> sneak in a run or two. Just throwing her under the bus there completely, and um, Chris oh, Mivard as well. <laughs> you can cut that, you can cut that one out. I don't mind. Um, and then we've also had Chris Miv- Smivard set up the um, lockdownorienteering.com for a competition over the Easter break, which is. Um, going to be a virtual orienteering competition running at the same time as the JK so there'll be a sprint a middle a long a relay and a tempo competition all based on kind of catching features and other orienteering based puzzles and some of the proceeds from that will be going to the athlete support fund and supporting the GB squad so uh, have a have a look at or- lockdownorienteering.com if you want something to fill your orienteering fix over the Easter weekend and there's, there's obviously a lot more going on out in the orienteering sphere um, so if you do have anything that you think particularly deserves a shout out or you want a, you know getting a special mention just give us a shout on Twitter and or Facebook and we'll uh we'll give it a shout out on the next podcast we'll see what happens on the next episode but we'll make sure we have another full-fledged interview for for you all to listen to and obviously everybody stay safe um stay at home wash your hands enjoy the training when you can get out and do it um and yeah uh hopefully you you all enjoy and and, and imagine to stay staying up stay stay sane out there there you go get that one out <laughs> and we'll be back next time <laughs>